Good morning. The text this morning comes from Galatians 1, 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult without anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But when I went away in Arabia and returned against the Damascus, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for this testimony that is ours as well. So God, as we come in here with things on our minds and our hearts, whether that's children or bills or irritated with being sick and allergies and relational struggle, whether at home or at work, God, that you would be primary this morning, that Jesus would be ever before us. Father, that you would make all things right, that we would long for the day of your return. And I pray, Father, that you would just open up your scriptures to us this morning. Use us, use teachers upstairs right now as they teach our children. God, that your word would be supreme, that you would be honored, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, welcome. Uh, this day is a weird day for me, if I'm being honest. March 19th, uh, 1999 was the day that my grandfather passed away, so it always brings up some emotion in our family. He, uh, he was a, a great man that loved the Lord, and so, it's a so it was a sobering moment for me. I was 12, and if you know anything about 12-year-old Carrie, he was always angry, so it's not shocking when this day happened that that was my first feeling. It was just anger, but that was always bubbling under the surface for me as a, as a kid. That's a big part of my testimony of how I know that the Lord saved me. But reflecting on him this week and today, he was a great man. He was a great storyteller. He was loud and he was not proud. He was humble and he was funny and he was welcoming. And so our family rallied around their home, my grandmother and my grandfather. It was a place that we met up in Arlington, Texas. Every time we had a wedding, any type of ceremony, baptism, birthday, we had fun and uh, this day, he was mowing the grass and felt some chest pain. My grandmother called an ambulance just to be safe. They took him to the hospital, and somewhere along the way, before he got there, he passed away 
most likely from a heart attack at the ripe age of 71. And so just reflecting on that, this was a, a man of the Lord, and we, we loved him. And when that happened, uh, that was a big deal. We, we did Thanksgiving there. We knew the routine, how to set up the chairs and the tables when everybody got there. Uh, th- Christmas, my grandmother would hang up 40 to 50 stockings, insane, in the living room. We just had so many cousins and aunts and uncles. And so this was a fun family. I was super spoiled growing up. The Lord was gracious to us, and we had a good time. And I honestly think about, that's going to be a lot of you. You didn't grow up that way, but this is going to be your homes because what you're setting as an example because of what the Lord is doing in your homes. And so just reflecting on that, if I fast forward another 11 years, my grandmother is in a hospital again, and she's dealing with cancer. And the day after Thanksgiving in 2010, she passed away. And that year, we didn't get to have Thanksgiving, and we really would never again uh, in that way. That was a moment in my life that I reflect on, and it was good. And I reflect on her holding my face in a hospital and crying and just telling me she loved me before she passed away. And that's a great memory for me, as painful as it is. And uh, I just asked her, how are you? And she said, I'm ready. And it was so just sweet and terrible all at the same time. And at the moment, I couldn't really see what the Lord was doing, especially with my grandfather. I, as a 12-year-old, you can't drink that stuff in. You don't know what's happening. And so this was a shift in our family. Uh, I didn't like it, and it felt painful, but I couldn't see what the Lord was doing. And so with my mom's family on the other side of it, they were the, I guess, pagan family, right? They did everything uh, that seemed to bring chaos into their lives. And so as a child, I didn't love that scenario. I didn't like going and doing holidays over there, although we did. But what God was doing was shifting us away from the sweet little April family to bring gospel conversation into a new family. And since that time, I've had four aunts and uncles come into the Lord. My grandmother is now currently living in this Christian community center, and she's going to church and studying God's word like I've never seen. And it's so beautiful what the Lord did. And so he shifted us away. He really protected a time for us to grow up in the faith and then to move on into new spaces. And so I share all of that because what God is doing now is my aunt's house, my mom's side of the family, has became the place where we, we rally around. We go and celebrate what the Lord's doing. And she's became the new home of what used to be my grandparents, the April side of the family. And my dad's sister, the April is now best friends with one of my mom's sisters. And so I see God merging these people under the banner of Jesus Christ. And I say all that because that's what I see Paul doing in a sense when he's writing these letters to these churches. He's asking them to evaluate, to reflect, and look at what God's doing amongst them. And in this moment in our text, what Long just read, is Paul challenging them, saying, hey, you're saying this and you're going this direction, but do you remember what the Lord did? Like, let's reflect back and see what the Lord is doing here. Are you going to return back to your former ways? Do you not remember what God did with us here? I was there. You were there. And so he's talking to the Galatians. Uh, I had to look up a lot of this. Uh, A lot of us, we're not sitting in Galatia, right? We're not sitting in uh, modern-day Turkey. But that's where it's at, central Turkey. And the Galatians were most likely a Celtic people. And so they had these old roots that they migrated from France to Asia, most likely, and they landed here in central Turkey, in Galatia. And so what they're having to do is filter through all that Paul's saying. Paul has this Jewish rich history, right? 
And they don't, they don't know most of that. And so he's coming into this scenario, and he's not teaching them law, but he's teaching them why Jesus was the fulfillment of this law. That's a big deal. Paul, Paul knew all these reasons, but they didn't. But they're also sitting under the control of Rome, and Rome would put these puppet kings in place in these cities, and they really had no power other than to represent that Rome was in power in these cities. And so what you have in Galatia, it's just giving you a little backstory of what's happening in this city, is you have old Celtic roots and culture. You've got the Roman Empire over them, so you've got Roman culture. But you've also got this rich Jewish culture, and then the kingdom of God, right? And so we're clashing all right here in one of the earliest churches formed in Scripture. And so you've got Roman, Celtic, culture of God clashing with the Jews. So that's a lot of culture. And just like any family, this is four cultures coming together, but even in a marriage, right, we bring our own cultures. That doesn't always go well. Uh, there's a lot of baggage that we tend to bring in, and so you've got thousands of people coming together and clashing in this, so that's going to be a recipe for unrest, historically, spiritually, politically, and relationally. And so what God is doing in his kindness, he brings Paul, and we see him as angry, right? But really, God is being kind to these people. He's bringing Paul, one of the most unlikeliest of messengers of the Lord, to come and speak into this chaos. And if we're remembering back before this book, Paul spent time with the Galatians. That we, we know a little bit because they came to know the Lord. And so what he's doing is showing back up through this letter and challenging them in everything about the way that they're living currently. He's asking them to reflect of what they experienced, how the Lord transformed their lives. And so most likely, we don't have a lot of depth to this story, but how Paul tended to minister to these cities and take them under his wing. He spent time with them, sometimes years. And he would have conversations. They sat, they lived life together. They would eat and drink and share stories. He was explaining history. He was explaining what, the, what God was doing through history. And they shared joys and pains, much like a family. So through that, the Galatians repented. They turned to the Lord in a great display of God's glory and healing mercy. And so what we find here is Paul making an argument in our text today. It's a singular argument. There is one gospel. So if you take any notes, that would be the one, because that's what Paul's saying. There is one gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not from man. It is not something of our own doing. And you can't explain it away by what these false teachers have came to do in this scenario. And so verse 11 and 12, if you want to look there, Paul is really making the same argument he's already said in verse 1 of our text, or of this chapter. But he's going against these Pharisees that are saying Paul's a fake, that he's making this stuff up. It didn't really happen that way. And so he says at the end of verse 11, this is not man's gospel. Verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Then Paul does the exact opposite of what any good politician or debater would do. He belittles himself a little bit. He makes himself look weak and not strong. In verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, 
so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father and my father's. Paul previously hated this message, right? He was going against the very people of God, the church of God. But now being on the other side of it, the other side of the story, in verses 15 and 16, he continues, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I, do not, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So Paul, if we dig a little bit deep into, deeper into this text, he's actually being kind of clever here in his words. He knew what the Pharisees were about. So he's having to defend himself not only against the Galatians to say, hey, wake up here, but also against his former peers, the Pharisees. The Pharisees had came to Jerusalem, and this is why he's writing this letter, because they were going to discredit Paul, and they start sharing lies about Paul. Paul was a former Pharisee, and what the Pharisees prided themselves on was that they were set apart by the law. But now, God didn't set, part, didn't set Paul apart by the, law, by the law, but Paul is saying, God set me apart by his grace for me to preach. Set me apart under grace. And who did he send them to? To the dirty Gentiles, right? The Pharisees, they pride in themselves over all people, especially people outside of the people of God. But now Paul is going to the very people that he used to be against. So when Paul says this, that God set him apart from birth, you can read that in those two scriptures or those two verses, to preach the gospel and not just to keep the law, one, he's kind of spitting in the face of everything about Jewish culture and what these Pharisees were about. That he didn't set me apart for the law, but he set me apart for his glory, by his grace. And then two, Paul places himself on the same playing field as the prophets. Uh, Jeremiah 1.5, similar wording here. When God's talking to Jeremiah, I have set you apart to be a prophet to the nations. The same ministry that Paul had. So that's why Paul, or Paul originally hated the church. And the Christians preached, it wasn't the law that sets you apart. This was their message, it was Jesus Christ. And Paul's whole world previously was wrapped up in the law before Jesus came and challenged him. And so what might seem as we look at this text that makes Paul weak, Paul is doing it intentionally, and we know that. Paul is actually setting up a beautiful invitation for everyone in this room, and we'll get there. He's describing everything he did wrong previously, although at the time he felt right. You ever felt that way? He was wrong in the eyes of God. And he goes on to say why he was wrong and why he was the worst of worst. So Paul was actually spiritually blind way before Jesus ever came along and physically blinded him on the road to Damascus. And then he goes on to say, in verses 16 and 17, he'll, he'll say, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So there's a lot, again, here. If you've got a Bible, you most likely have maps in the back. I, I pulled these out. I forgot. My other Bible, all the maps are falling out. Uh, but I pulled them out, and I never look at these things. Usually I'm on my phone or on my computer, so I've got better versions. But these are actually really great in this scenario when he's describing where he's at. 
It would have made complete sense for Paul to head to the epicenter of where the Christians were. And he knew where they were. Why? Because his testimony is that he was a Christian hitman, right? He was tracking these guys. He knew exactly where they were at. And that would have placed them in Judea. But Jesus intervenes. And he meets Paul on the road to Damascus as Paul is going to further persecute the church and he awakens Paul to the reality of what's going on. And by God's kindness, he leads Paul away into Arabia. And that seems weird because it's in the complete opposite direction on your map. So Paul is still setting up this argument here in our text. But another thought I had, and we can see God's wisdom in this, he did this also with baby Jesus, taking him away for a moment to hide him away or to give people time to settle down. But what if Paul would have stayed? Paul was persecuting the church of God. And then what if all of a sudden he turns in repentance to Jesus and he stays right where he's at? What would his Pharisees, what were the Pharisees done to him? If they were killing the Christians, what would they have done to Paul, a defector of the law? That was one thought I had I was going through this. Such God's kindness in here that he sidelines Paul's story for three years and takes him away to minister to him. He's under the counsel of Jesus himself. And my thought was, man, I've had moments where for three days or three hours, I get whiny. I get bored. Right? We, get, we are a bored people sometimes. We complain super quickly because I can't see what God's doing. What are you doing here, God? But at times, what feels like nothing happening in our lives might be everything in the kingdom of God. And we see that playing out here. And Paul's making the argument that this is not from man, this is from God. Verse 18 in our text, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Paul says this because the false teachers were calling him a liar, that he got this from, he spent all of his time with these disciples and apostles, right? And he said, I didn't, I only, I was gone for three years. And then I spent two weeks with, with Peter and they're going to say, this is where I got all of my information, that this, this guy that was a crazy advocate for the law, law a hitman, is now turned miraculously through the teachings of Peter? No, this isn't from man. Verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then there's an exclamation here, which I love. I don't know how he would say this in writing, but... He's passionate. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And I imagine he's saying it in that way because these were his friends, his brothers and sisters, right? He'd spent time with them. I'm angry at you because you've forgotten. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. I think he says, I did not lie. It was another way of just saying, go ask. If you don't trust me, man, then go ask Cephas, which we know as Peter. Go ask James. And if that's not enough, if you still think I'm lying, go talk to all the other people in Judea. Paul is making the point that these Galatians knew him and have so quickly deserted the faith. They experienced this just as much as Paul did. And so he's confused and he's angry of saying, you're just going to throw this away? And so he's asking them to examine the stories. 
Go ask these guys. Take into account, if I'm lying, go ask them. And we'll see where the story holds up. And so another reason I think he mentions these places that he's going or that he could have gone is because if he would have went to the disciples first, I think they would have sent him. It makes sense that if they're doing ministry together, discipleship allows people to come in and do work amongst other believers. And so they probably would have sent him to Judea. Judea. And that's why verse 22 is such a big deal as he's making this point in our text today, this final point, about why the false teacher's logic is just wrong. He says, you're not willing to believe me even though I am writing to you before God and I do not lie? Then go ask Peter. Go ask James. And if that's not enough, then go ask the people of Judea, the Christians there, the hundreds of believers that would have been around these apostles that these false teachers are talking about. And he says, and guess what? You'll find that these people don't even know me. I've spent no time with them. And the only reason that they know me is because they have heard that the persecutor against God's church has now turned into one of you. And they actually glory. They're going to be a testimony to God, not of these Pharisees. And so he's making a very simple, clear statement in our text today that this gospel is not man's, but God has done a great work. And so he just tells his story. And that's what we've talked about in fundamentals class, of just how powerful just telling your story is, because this is where God works. He works in the heart of man. That is where the kingdom of God takes residence. And nothing about Paul's story here is a work of man. He ends in the last two verses of our text saying to these people that you have so quickly deserted this gospel. If I'm lying, go ask the other people to affirm what these Pharisees are saying. But even those people, they're going to vouch for me and give glory to the Lord. Oh, foolish Galatians. And so through these arguments of this letter, although Paul is mad, again, I'll say it, he's actually being quite gracious God's, this is God's kindness to the Galatians people. And so he's not avoiding them. He's writing a letter very strongly. He's not trying to shame them, but he's so deeply concerned for them. He's saddened to anger of what these Pharisees are doing, how they're leading astray God's people. And so he's, he's being like a protective parent, aggressively stepping in between their attacker and his spiritual children. I think that's a beautiful analogy for what Paul continues to do to fight for God's church. Uh, I got to spend some time with Doug Matkins this week. I didn't tell him I was going to say his name in the sermon. He's just shook his head. But it was all good. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, I love Doug. Doug is an encourager and does not want me to talk about him right now. But if you spend any time with him or most people in this church, it's going to lead to further encouragement to dive into God's word. And that's exactly where we ended. We landed on this word. He was kind of teaching me some stuff about the word gospel. And it made me, it encouraged me to go dig deeper into the history centered around this. And it was so interesting. I was just kind of, I didn't even tell him that. It was just, that was the thing that lingered with me after that conversation of just this word gospel. And we're probably going to do some more classes and fundamentals and incorporate what is the gospel because I think it's so pivotal to what we do, to our understanding of why we take care of each other in the way that we do, why we meet 
every day. But as I dug deeper into this, it's actually a Greek word, and it originally means a concept of a tip or a gift paid to a messenger of a king. As someone who delivers good news, they would be paid a tip for a message. Not necessarily good news, but news. It slowly morphed into a, a, this term of good news, what we would say the gospel. That's the definition of gospel. It means good news. But it was still a Roman word during this time. The Romans took it over. The Romans took it over from the Greek. They liked it. So when a king or governor or someone would come into power in a territory or a city, they would make a gospel presentation. Right? They would stand up in front of the city or at the town gate and do the hear ye, hear ye. Right? I don't know if that's what they said, but you get the idea. They stood up and they made a gospel presentation of this exchange of power. And so by the time that Jesus rolls up on the scene, he takes over this word. Gospel isn't in the Old Testament. And so it's this interesting new concept to the people of God that they just take as their own. It was a Greek word now turned Roman, now turned Christian. And we see it play out. In Matthew, he uses the word gospel three different times in chapters 4, 9, and 24 to describe Jesus as going into a place to share the gospel of the kingdom. Mark uses it two, two different phrases, and he uses it so many times. Gospel of God and the gospel of Jesus, over and over and over. And so by the time that we get to the end of those two books and to the end of Luke, and by the time that we get to the books of Acts, most of the writers just drop the other words and just say gospel. It's became such a Christian word that they don't have to say the gospel of Jesus or the gospel of the kingdom or the gospel of God because the term was truly taken over by Jesus and his followers. Why is that a big deal? What does Jesus say on the cross? Put that up for you. John 19.30. Jesus completed his work and he says, it is finished. I've got a final gospel for you. That the king is here and forever enthroned. There is one gospel. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other avenue to salvation except through Jesus Christ. And so the singular word gospel was enough. Why? Because Jesus is sufficient. And so this is Paul's point. That these men have led you astray. Galatians. From the deep truths of Jesus and his gospel. And are trying to make this about law. They're now trying to make it about me against you. But this is not against, this is not for us, or this is not about us. This is God's gospel. This is not something we have conjured up. You experienced it with me. We did not fabricate this story. We are partakers in this story of God. And this gospel of the sufficient king, King Jesus, he's the final authority, the final gospel. So when you hear that word, Think of that. Think of it in its finality and what Jesus means when he says gospel. And Paul in this text as well, he's kind of making the argument to say, look at me. You think this is from man? You think this is from the apostles? It was a zealot, several fishermen, a tax collector that no one liked. And Bartholomew was probably one of the only learned disciples in this whole group, a scholar of the law. Paul was a learned religious man of the Jewish law, but he's saying, look how far from God I was. 
And so his claim was that he was far more against God and far too gone than any of these other guys. And yet he writes in, to the Corinthians, he says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Colossians 3.11, he says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. He's setting up the same argument to all these churches. This is not man's gospel, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one hasn't complained against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So because of what Jesus has done for us, our identity is no longer rooted in our own merit. It's not about us. Paul's saying there is no power in the claim that we are Jew or free or slave or black or white or Mexican or American or Canadian, Kelsey, or Scythian or circumcised or uncircumcised. He says this holds no weight in the kingdom of God, for it is not man's gospel. Man does not have final authority but we are new creations. The old has passed and the new has come. And so that's why Paul, in the middle of describing how big and awesome Jesus is in that text, Colossians 3, which I would advise you to go and just spend time there. In the middle of this, as he's describing how awesome Jesus is, he oddly addresses us and our complaining. Why does he do that? Because he's saying that was us. We were complainers. We were 12-year-old Carrie, right? Stewing in hate and discontentment and anger for whatever reason. But a final gospel is here, and with it, new life. And so therefore, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then in Colossians 3.14, he ends what we just read with another odd thing inserted in there. It just kind of seems like odd and dropped at the end of it. And be thankful. He does this because... We were once a people of death and complaining, and we're stewing in discontentment, never satisfied. But now we are fully satisfied and saved through this gospel of Jesus Christ. Where once we were complaining people, we are now a people of thanksgiving, something to celebrate. And so Paul's inviting everyone into this gospel here. And I don't know if you can see what he's doing, but he's saying to us in this room, you think you are too far gone? You think you are so jacked up that there is no overcoming your sin? Look who I was. Look at this. Look at me. Remember who we were. Oh, you haven't murdered God's church? You haven't gone against God himself where he has to come to you through his son and blind you? You haven't climbed the corporate ladder so high and chased after man's favor and blessing so much that God stops you in his tracks, in your tracks, 
He said, I am the worst of sinners. And guess what? Verse 15 and 16 of our text today. But when he had set me apart before I was born, hear that, before he was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. God set him apart and was pleased to do so. And he revealed himself to not only Paul, but to us. So I want you to hear that. If you think you've failed royally, Paul's saying, welcome, right? Paul is saying, this is why this is not man's gospel. Where we're insufficient, Jesus is so sufficient. He was sufficient in what he came to earth for. He died and rose from the dead, defeating anything that comes between us and the Lord. And so Paul says, you think you are the worst? I got you beat, right? He also says, you think you are nailing it? And you don't need God? So was I. You think your works will hold you up? They mean nothing. I had it all. I had the favor of God's people behind me. I was zealous for good works, advancing in my position as a Pharisee. I had the favor of the nation of Israel behind me. And guess what? It did not bring God glory. Paul gloried for himself and did everything that the world, would, the world would consider good. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I was untimely born, unworthy to be called an apostle, unworthy for Jesus to come and to teach me the things that he did and share this gospel, but he found me fit. He was pleased to share his son with me. Why? Because he's a God of grace. And Paul says, and it wasn't in vain. He's redeemed everything about me. And so I don't know where you're at this morning. I know a lot of us are tired. I can actually see it up here. It's a fun perspective from up here. I'm tired as well, so you're in good company. I don't know what we're distracted by. I don't know. You might be in a place of asking, God, what are you doing? It has been three years. It has been three decades I don't know what you're doing. I don't know whether you're a Christian or not in this room. Persecutor of God's church or good old American that feels like you have it all together. But one truth that Paul's trying to make in this text or is making is that we are all unworthy outside of the grace and power of Jesus Christ. He shares with the Romans in Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law. Not under what the Pharisees prided themselves in, but under grace. And so that's our message at Christ Church. That is Paul's message. It's our message because we look to God and his word. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so because of this, there is hope in Jesus alone because God made a way for us. And Paul says he's pleased to do so. So I want to close a little bit, just some more scripture for you to write down and go spend time in. Open your Bible, look at these maps, look at these scriptures, and see the beauty of what God's doing here, not just in Paul's day, but for us today. So if you want to put down your notes, we can go ahead and pray. I want to pray this over you. If you want to look up there and read it with me, that's fine as well. I want to pray this over us as we head into our Sunday getting past spring break for most of us. But just rest and see the beauty of what God's doing here. Colossians 3, 16 through 17. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the simplicity of your word. God, the singular argument here, before Paul can ever get to anything theological, he says, just remember. Remember what God has done. This is not man's gospel. This is a work of the Lord. And I thank you for that in this place, God, in this gym. You make it practical for us too. You break it down. At times we go through sickness or surgeries or just hardship, and we have to ask for help. We're dependent people, and you give us these blessings of humility sometimes to be served, to remember what Christ has done for us, to let the church be the church, and to let us serve alongside of them as well. Sometimes we're the ones serving and bringing things to people, and I just praise you for this people and the testimony that they are, that obviously it is not a work of us and how good we are and the works that we bring to the table and all these cool things. But God, you are good. We know who we are apart from you. That is our testimony. And so I pray that you would remind us of those things today, the good and the bad from the past. And God, that you would waken us to the reality and the reminder again that Jesus is king, that he is sitting on his throne now, It's not something that will come and it's happening today, that he is king today and he will come back and he will redeem everything. And we thank you for the peace that you bring through this king, through the final gospel, the final change of authority or to show up on the scene and say, I am the authority as you always have been, conquering death and sin So we praise you, Father, in this place today for being God, being gracious. We love you. We trust you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.